This podcast is brought to you by Cyberattacks can be prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Israel's new government is taking shape and the man at the helm, Benjamin Netanyahu, could find it spells trouble. Meanwhile, a series of lightning raids in Germany reveals a sinister new threat in that country. We're going to be talking royals, we're going to be talking football. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Two Jews on the News from Keshet Podcasts. Do you mind, uh, Jonathan, if this week I begin with a little bit of escapism? Just a bit, nothing to do with the news? I'm very happy with that because we need it. <laughs> a bit <laughs> of escape think? is very necessary. We could have done it all year. So go on, yes, what have you got on your mind? Well, so I opened the long, long list of things I uh, needed to do after the elections and before the sixth elections. Uh, and uh, top of the list was to organize my library. So I spent uh, a good part of a Friday reorganizing the library. And I admit to you, you know this already, but to our listeners that I did it by color, not author, not topic, subject, but by color. Now, of course, part of this was to annoy you. So I <laughs> definitely work after after I did. I did send you a picture. Uh, you uh, said that I was what was it? A, a moral, moral barbarian. barbarian is what I yes, said for organizing organizing my books uh, by color. And uh, I should tell our listeners that uh, the next uh, thing that you wrote me was, oh, I can see two of my books because suddenly you could realize that on the red shelf is your book and on the black shelf is where you could find the books. Um, and yes, I will, I will defend my idea because I realize that a lot of people would think that you, you know, it makes you sort of an illiter- illiterate uh, person to do this by color. But I don't think I should prove or need to prove to anyone that I read books and love reading books. And I know that it kind of makes it harder to find the books. But to be honest, I had a hard time finding them even before they were color-coded. So I'm very pleased because the most important thing is that my library is now aesthetically pleasing and beautiful. And that's it, Jonathan Friedland. And you can be as annoyed as you want. Yeah, I mean, I, it did <laughs> tap some hitherto unknown nerve in me. It just outraged <laughs> me. It seemed so barbaric. But, but I, saw, I saw the aesthetic appeal immediately. It did look really good. I mean, the shades, and you even did a bit of shading so as if like a spectrum, so a dark shading. red, mm-hmm. and then slightly softer red. To me, it was an offense against um, liter- literature uh, and writing because you have to do it by uh, genre or author or something. Um, that said, it is an improvement on this area, which you can see where the books are just in now vertical piles on the floor. I'm moving back on our Zoom call so that you can see just piled it's up It's a now. mess. It's, it's such a mess. mess. My 21-year-old son was back from university this week and he, looked, he took one look inside and said, oh my God, it's like you're a hermit. Um, because uh, because the state of this room, it is so awful. So you win on that. Also, we should tell people that you were able to say, yeah, but I have organized my libraries in Hebrew and in Italian differently. And I thought, okay, if you were going for literary snob value and snob points, <laughs> you win, even if you have committed a crime against writing by filing by color. It's better than this arrangement Just- where there's filing by you know, floor space and where I can get room <laughs> and I can't find anything except through... And, and um, just, uh, I'm wondering what, one more thing, after calling me a moral barbarian, uh, yeah, what did, would it yeah. sound like if you were trying to insult me, Jonathan? <laughs> oh, I could go worse. But in a way, that's right <laughs> up there. Um, 
Yeah, it did see it offended something, some part of me I didn't know I had. Um, but look, I know people do it. And Marie Kondo, if that's her name, the woman who advises on tidiness, mm -hmm. she advises, but you know, display your books as if they're wallpaper. And but she also says because she that's also says all you they can't have. <laughs> but she also says you can't have more than 30 books. And I was like, really? On, you mean on your nightstand, right? I mean, because I don't know what you can't have more than three. She has that line as well. Uh, we should stop talking about books because it's making us look bad. Let's talk about football. Yeah, that's big. That? Um, although another sore point you've managed to find <laughs> unerringly, uh, because England are playing France on the on Saturday night. Um, big, big game because France are the defending world champions. It's a quarterfinal. It could be the last game England play. It's, you know, in this tournament. It really matters. Obviously, I, I was very much looking forward to it. And then consulted the diary and recalled that with joy and delight, a, there is a bar mitzvah in the extended family. And of course, I will be there with joy and a spring in my step. But I am reminded of the plot of the very good British Jewish movie 66, which, if you haven't seen it, is the story of a little boy whose bar mitzvah is set for the date of the World Cup final of 1966. And as England progressed through round after round, he begins to experience a sense of rising dread as he realises his bar mitzvah is going to be on the day of the World Cup final. And sure enough, that's how it turns out. And relatives start phoning, saying, you won't believe it, but I've come down with a terrible cold. I can't come to the bar mitzvah. Um, this, of course, will not be happening. We all look forward to young Louis Bar Mitzvah uh, in our family. It will be a day of joy and celebration. And we will put the World Cup quarterfinal game uh, entirely out of our minds for those few hours. We, we should say that 1966, not to rub it in, is the last time, first and last, if I'm not mistaken, you are right. time that England won the World Cup uh, and triggering one of the best quotes in football history. It was what the columnist at the Daily Mail with the... Before the game, right? He said, if Germans beat us today at our national game, we can always console ourselves with the fact that we twice beat them at theirs. It is. Oh, yeah, that's a brilliant line. Um, that is bowdlerized in the form of a chant that you will hear. Actually, you mm. don't hear it very often. Now, we're going to be talking about Germany later on in the podcast, but you used to hear fans at the at World Cup, uh, at international games between England and Germany chanting two world wars and one World Cup. Um, you know, hmm. do dart, do dart, two world cups, etc. Um, because you know, as if these two, as if football was war by other means. Um, it, you know, the record of England and Germany in these matchups is uh, huge. That was the uh, story. It was England beat Germany in 1966. This time, it's France defending world champions. It's um, it's a big, big game, and I will take great interest in discovering the score afterwards perhaps reading it in my sunday morning newspaper the next day maybe that will be when i discover the outcome of this game so that's um what's going on in our world um, in our world of escapism now the real world now maybe? back to perhaps? the real world go on what is Not happening that football isn't the real world but you know so yeah. um what has been going on in my neck of the woods maybe um, the not yet sworn in Netanyahu government, we should say, has been causing uh, something of a ruckus. This is really before the plane even left uh, the tarmac. And as I said, the government hasn't been sworn in. But the latest uh, piece of news, and this has been coming out at uh, a fairly uh, quick uh, pace these days, this morning, 
It appears that Netanyahu in his uh, negotiation, coalition negotiation with the ultra-Orthodox has also made major concessions to the UTJ. He will uh, boost uh, the funding for the ultra-Orthodox institutions that don't study core secular subjects. We talked about this in the podcast in the past, a massive blow to anyone who thinks that Israel's future depends uh, very much upon the integration of the ultra-Orthodox into the workforce. Another demand by the United Torah Judaism, we should mention this, this is important for our diaspora uh, listeners is that uh, uh, the, the Israel put sanctions on uh, the Women of the Wall, the organization that's goal is to secure the rights of women to pray at the Western Wall. Of course, the ultra orthodox uh, uh, look very differently at this uh, phenomenon. They would like uh, legal uh, ways to deter them. Netanyahu has not yet agreed. He knows the significance of this kind of uh, demand, but it's also part of uh, the coalition negotiations. Now let's talk about a man we might be mentioning his name once or twice in the next couple of years. This is Avi Maoz. He is the head of Noam Party, uh, which is part of religious Zionism. By the way, we should say that the whole uh, construct of the religious Zionism is uh, created by Netanyahu himself, who was worried about losing votes on that side of the, the far right side of the political map. But when they came to negotiations, which is uh, Bezalel Smotrich and Ben Gvir and Avi Maoz, through three different parties, they came separately, which is basically to get more from Net- out of Netanyahu, and they succeeded. Avi Maoz is a one-man faction, uh, and of course he is anti-gay, anti-feminist, anti-liberal, uh, and he uh, received in these coalition negotiations from Netanyahu the authority or jurisdiction over all of the extracurricular lessons in the Israeli education system. That is huge. Uh, That is the power that he has uh, received. And already we are seeing 50, at least 50 local council heads saying they will not let him uh, direct plans. This is something of a revolt. And this is just the beginning. As I said, we haven't even started. What interests me about this um, is that I think a lot of the anticipation, probably outside the country, uh, of the um, arrival of these three right-wing groupings under one banner in the coalition was what it would mean in terms of anti-Arab policy. These, put, you know, the, this ultranationalist, racist grouping. What that would mean in terms of discrimination and whether Jews in the diaspora, in particular, and foreign governments would um, shun this new government partly because of the presence of these very right-wing groups in terms of their attitudes to Palestinians. I think it's fascinating what you're saying because the emerging thought is that the uh, pushback this new government may get from diaspora Jews and particularly from foreign governments might be about these other areas. The LGBT thing is exactly the kind of area where you can imagine liberal Jews in America just saying, we're not taking that. We're not going to stomach that. And the thing you mentioned earlier about the women at the wall, the notion of equal prayer for men and women at the Western Wall if that is further eroded or or if the restrictions on it are formalized or re- escalated in any way, you, th- there is the, the possibility that, you know, liberal reform, conservative congregations in the United States mm-hmm. who implicitly were ready to swallow perhaps some of the harsher policies on towards Arabs uh, in Israel and on the West Bank will will nevertheless draw the line at this kind, these kinds of social issues. We've talked before about how uh, Netanyahu is doing this kind of charm offensive on the American media circuit 
the American podcast circuit. Very deliberate. Barry Weiss we talked about last week. This week he's done George Jordan Peterson. Not sure, quite sure of what that does for him because that's not speaking to liberal America really. I don't quite fully get that. But he's definitely doing this because I think he knows that diaspora Jews are, are finding lots to dislike in this government. But as I say, it's not on the obvious national conflict territory between Jews and Arabs. It's rather about how this government deals in some ways with other Jews, with Jewish women, with mm. lesbian and gay Jews, etc. Those could be the points of friction between this government and the rest of the Jewish world. Yes, and we should remember, uh, and trying to sort of map this out, right? I mean, you have the Likud, the, the major party on the right, and then farther than that is Bezalel Smoltwich, he's the far right, and then you have Itamar Ben-Gvir with his Jewish power party that is far, far right. Avi Maoz is so far on the right, Jonathan, that he's almost dangling from the map. He's the farthest from the Jewish political consensus that you have. And the fact that Netanyahu is giving him power, such power in the education ministry, is something that everyone is noticing. They're noticing it inside Israel and they're noticing it outside Israel. I think what Netanyahu was hoping was that he gives him this very big gift. Uh, the reciprocity here is that he'll get in return the gift of silence and that Avi Moz will just stop talking, to be quite honest. Now, what happened? what's happening is the opposite, right? Yesterday he stood in the Knesset plenum. He brought up Hanukkah. He started singing, actually, uh, um, Hanukkah songs that said the true darkness is liberal Judaism. That, that doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good in Israel. It doesn't sound good outside Israel. This is going to be an issue. Uh, and of course, if you, 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 you even look, kind of zoom out on this and think about conversions and about the issue of, you know, the, the, the law of return, all of these kinds of things uh, are, going to be, are going to be major. Now, let's talk about security, right? Because we talked about this last week. We should make the emphasis on this. Look, the Americans, as clear, the U.S. administration, as clearly as it could, told Netanyahu, don't make Bezalel Smotrich of the far right defense minister, right? I mean, we know this. The ambassador, the U.S. ambassador, Tom Nide, said to Netanyahu, he met with him three weeks ago, urged him to uh, exercise caution in choosing his defense minister. And Netanyahu did this interesting trick, right? He said, okay, the defense minister is going to be Yoav Gallant, serious man, he rose through the ranks of the Israeli military, but Sarah Smoltis is going to be the, the minister of finance. But he's also going to be, and this is unprecedented, is even in Israel, it's unprecedented, he's also going to be a minister in the Ministry of Defense who uh, is in charge, his jurisdiction is, his jurisdiction is the agency of uh, a civil administration. Essentially, he will be in charge of what happens in the settlements. This is something that could very easily cause any sort of flare-up, and it also seems in the coalition agreements that he will be the one appointing the army, the military general who is in charge of this agency, used to be the jurisdiction of the uh, and the prerogative of the IDF chief of staff. So it even messes with the chain of command. Who's giving this man orders? This is uh, this. This could be a very big mess for for Netanyahu himself and for all of Israel. Yeah, I mean, so many things to say on, on, on all of this. Just first, I just want to go back briefly on Avi Maoz. I just think it's very interesting. Uh, a piece by our friend uh, Anshel Pfeffer over Haaretz thought that the idea of this bit of education spending being given to Avi Maoz, did Netanyahu think, well, that's fine, that's no big deal, it's only education, because this is an area of policy that's never interested him, and he's often just regarded it as um, uh, as, as marginal, and yet if it outrages local councils and parents who vote, it could be that he's really trodden on uh, um, uh, a, a sort of mousetrap there, that that is 
but you know really a, a mistake but if it's born of a blind spot on education i found that interesting on smotrich giving him the finance ministry um i can see why yeah good he's avoided one headache for himself by not making him defense minister it struck me that the foreign minister um the finance minister is one of those jobs though that does require meeting a lot with international counterparts um, and that is going to create a diplomatic headache because there will be people who won't want to meet him. And it would have been easier to put him in a job where there weren't, you know, tons of meetings with other finance ministers and so on. But the big sinister point is the one you've mentioned, um, which is this role he's going to have in the civil administration in the West Bank. In effect, and I deliberately use sort of colonial language, being made sort of governor of the West Bank. Um, with the authority to appoint the military governor, um, that is to put the, that level of responsibility in the hands of an ultra-rightist like that is so incendiary that even despite what I was saying before, that you know maybe the points of tension with diaspora and others are going to be women's rights, LGBT rights, this puts it right back into the traditional conflict, which is Israel's treatment of the Arabs it rules inside Israel, but also on the occupied territory of the West Bank. It is so explosive to put a real, you know, hard rightist like Smotrich. This is the man who said he didn't think, he didn't want um, Jewish women next to Arab women on maternity wards of hospitals. I mean, to my mind, I can say this, you're very, you know, you have to be much more careful. But to me, that is a racist thing to say. He's a racist and he's in charge of the West Bank. Um, in effect, uh, uh, I think it is completely explosive. And it makes you think that the kind of policies he's going to pursue, we always talk about creeping annexation. This is sort of annexation in name only, the kind of policies Smotrich is going to pursue. He will see no distinction between the West Bank and Israel proper. This is a massive step to the right by Netanyahu. And um, it's sort of all the, you know, everyone's worst fears, people who are fearing this new government, this move suggests their worst fears are going to be realized. Yes, for, there's no question that uh, Smotrich is uh, pro-annexation, pro-settlement expansion, and anti-two-state solution. I mean, the ideology here is clear. Uh, I would m- want to make two points to you, because what we're going to start seeing, I-, I imagine, is Netanyahu talking more and more about Iran. Now, we've been hearing, you know, Netanyahu tends to talk about Iran a lot, as it is. We've been hearing some of his loyalists, especially Tzachia Negbi and our Friday night program, saying Netanyahu will attack Iran, right? Now, why, have he, why is he saying this? He's not saying this because Netanyahu will necessarily attack Iran uh, on Monday. But he's saying it because he's trying to signal to the Bezalel Smotrich and the Ben Gvir guys, you got to keep it down a notch and you got to make sure that you're not going to cre- create any flare-ups with Gaza or in, in East Jerusalem because Netanyahu is serious about dealing with the Iranian threat. Now, the problem with that theory, right? Netanyahu still thinks that he has complete control over what happens in his government. He does not. Ben Gvir and Smotrich and Avi Maoz are unruly factions in his coalition. He does not have full control over them. That's one point. The other point I wanted to make is to just send you to one picture of last week, and that is the UAE, uh, uh, UAE's uh, ambassador here in Israel hosting a National Day event, and one of the people who was received very warmly there was Itamar Ben Gvir. Now, again, this is someone who made most of his career talking against Arabs, uh, being accepted warmly at this reception by uh, the, the Emirates. Why is this happening? I think we should note this. This is happening because everyone is sort of in this sit and wait position, right? They're signaling to Netanyahu, we're giving you a chance. We're giving this government a chance, not because we love everyone in this government, but we have no choice. 
But we'll wait and see, right? We'll have to wait and see what happens here. Yeah, if I was a Palestinian, I would really be saddened by that. The the notion that they are being discarded, um, that they have been forgotten by the other Arab states, the Gulf states. I mean, they already knew that because the Arab states, the Gulf states rather, signed the Abraham Accords without there being any movement on the Palestinians. But the notion well, that they Netanyahu could... Well, giving up annexation, but yeah, I mean, you mean yeah. that no other movement. And, and and the Smotrich appointment, as I said, suggests, yeah, maybe giving up annexation when it's called annexation, but de facto annexation, that's fine. And they didn't have to welcome it to Marbengvir. Um, that suggests, look, everything. We had, There are no red lines for them. Um, and that's if Palestinians who relied or always did historically rely on some degree of pan-Arab solidarity... Well, they're not getting it, um, is what that message uh, says to me and no doubt um, to them. We should talk about things going on in uh, closer to my neck of the woods uh, here in Europe. Um, big news this week and sort of shock news in some ways. I think it caught people by surprise. Um, came out of Germany, where federal prosecutors say they've uh, arrested 25 suspected members and supporters of the Reichsburger group, the so-called Reich Citizens Movement. Uh, they've been detained. They made raids in 11 of the country's 16 states. This was all across Germany, raiding this um, sort of ultranationalist far-right group. All kinds of characters were swept up in um the uh, these raids across you know Baden-Württemberg, Bavaria, Berlin, Hesse, and so on, including among those arrested a 71-year-old who goes by the name of Prince Heinrich the Thirteenth, who claims to be from a long-standing German aristocratic families, regarded as being central to the group, even imagined himself being a ruler of uh, a new Germany after they had mounted some kind of coup you know, and arrested, uh, led off wearing a sort of country country gentleman's jacket in quite an arresting image of the arrest. Um, tempting to, you know, regard this either as a sort of bizarre, thriller-esque story or a, a bizarre story out of a movie or even vaguely sort of comic, these sort of um, characters plotting and dreaming of uh, of a takeover. But it's obviously much more serious than that. So now we want to hear more about this, and who better to talk to than uh, Antonia Yamin, who's an analyst and senior correspondent for Bild in Berlin, and she's also a friend and an extraordinary journalist, used to be, we should say, the European correspondent for Channel 11 here in Israel. Antonia, thank you so much for talking to us today. I'm really happy to be here. And we're really happy to have you. I, I mean, we, we should ask about this attempted coup that sounds like a plot from a, a thriller. I mean, obviously, Germany is no stranger to far-right attempted coups, but how seriously should we be taking this story? I should say that the ride that happened yesterday um, was very serious. I mean, it's not every day that over 3,000 policemen and women are gathered and, and are arresting over 25 people from 12 different uh, states in Germany. It, it was huge. And it was, of course, also big in the media. But I would say, uh, I would say it like that. There was a real danger for violence, but I wouldn't say that there was a real danger for this attempted coup to, to succeed. Because Germany has so many layers of, of democracy and, and it's so established in, in its way of how it, 
it exists that this 25 people would never succeed to actually throw the, the government. Um, but we can see that they were prepared um, to, to use violence. I mean, these, these 25 people, they actually gathered since November 2021. They were taking shooting lessons, so they were willing to use violence and, and, and kill people or kidnap people. And this is why um, people in Germany actually take these this things very seriously. T tell us more about the group themselves and this wider movement, this Reichsburger movement that people have been reading about in the last 24, 48 hours. Because when you read about the right wing, the far right in Germany, immediately the imagination naturally defaults to think of Hitler and Nazis. But tell us more about this group, who they are and what they want. Well, you can't really define them because they are in this huge group, there are so many other small groups. The only thing that actually combines them is the fact that they don't believe in the democracy and, this, and the Republic of Germany. They uh, believe that uh, the, the West allies that, that treat uh, Nazi Germany are still occupying Germany. They are against the, the German flag, so they use in their demonstration this um, white, uh, black and red flag, which was the flag um, before the, the modern uh, German flag. And they really like myths and, and conspiracy myths. Yes, there are a lot of people that are also anti-Semitic, but I wouldn't say that that's like their main way of, of seeing the things. But, but yes, um, I can say that um, four months ago, I was interviewing a neo-Nazi that was hoping to become mayor in a very small village in Saxony, in, in Germany. And he told me the same things that these Reichsburgers say. So they, they can't really be defined like as one group, but, but there are a lot of small groups that gather then, especially after Corona. You could see them also on the streets of Berlin, like thousands of people coming from all over Germany and, and demonstrating against the state, uh, against Angela Merkel uh, at that time um, when, when it was against the Corona rules. And I think that the, their main thing is just hatred, hatred against the state, hatred against democracy. And yeah, so they were planning this coup. It's interesting to me when I, I read about this group, the one thing that kind of popped up, uh, popped out at me is the fact that they uh, were inspired by QAnon and other sort of conspiracy um, bent organizations like that. Uh, in the United States and others, do we have any um, any evidence that they had real connection with them, or just kind of inspired by this anti-establishment conspiracy theories? I think that they were more um, just inspired by this anti-establishment uh, um, movement that we can see. I mean, we can see it all over the world. And after the, the attempt in Washington in January 2021, I think that a lot of people just saw that it's possible. Because if you can do it in the capital, in Washington, D.C., where they take security very serious in, in, in the United States. So if you're like a part of someone who thinks like that in Germany, you, you, you can easily say, well, it's, it must be easy also to do it in Germany because in Germany, the security is not that high, like in Israel or in the United States. And, and I can even imagine that, that they would have succeeded in, in getting into the Bundestag. I remember that two years ago, I was covering uh, an anti-corona demonstration of these people, of these Reichsburger people, 
and they were actually standing on the steps of the Bundestag. They, they, and it wasn't planned. It was just a huge demonstration and, and they got to the stairs. So if you plan it properly enough, and they did, so they might have been successful. I just want to take you, I've got a question from that, but before we get to that, I just want to follow up one thing from before about this. I'm very interested in this story you mentioned about the flag. They don't recognise the mod, flag of modern Germany. When I hear that, I then think they want to go back to the situation that prevailed before modern Germany, which to me means 1945, which means Hitler and the Nazis. Or are they of trying to hark back to a Germany that is even before 1933? That's Because they're not going back to the swastika. So just explain exactly the era they hark back to. And then there's something I want to follow up on. That's exactly the thing, because they hide behind that. When when you talk to them and you say, well, that's also the, the, the colors that the Nazi used. And they say, no, that's also the colors that we used before the Nazi era. So they say they actually want to go to an older Germany and not to go oh. to the Third Reich, but to the Second Reich. But of course, when you speak with, with individuals in, in between in, in this group, then you can see, I mean, swastikas are not allowed in Germany. They're just against the law. If you use them, you go to prison. So um, yes. people that like tattoo them on their body when they come to this demonstration, you can see a lot of them like covering it up with with uh, ink or with with bandages and stuff like that. But they, they are using other symbols. They are using what is called... Um, the black sun, which is actually just a legal way to show a swastika. It's a lot of swastikas together that look like a sun. And mm. you can see in these gatherings, which they have, that they are selling um, products with, with this symbol. And everyone knows what it means. It's exactly like um, a lot of people uh, in Germany know what 88 means. 88 means yes. Heil Hitler. And they're just using legal symbols to to provide the, the messages that they want. Yeah. Now, the, the, the thing I was going to go to was I was very struck uh, earlier today, the uh, German MP for the SPD, the foreign affairs spokesperson, Neil Schmidt, told the BBC that right-wing terrorism is still the biggest threat to German democracy. And the reason why that leapt out at me is it seems to me that's not just true of Germany. There are quite a few countries that have been looking in other directions. Post 9-11, obviously, the world was very focused. Western security agencies were very focused on jihadist groups. I think of the Jewish community that has really spent a lot of energy worrying about, you know, the left and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, particularly from the left. And in a way, it's kind of striking to get a reminder that actually a, a country like Germany, it sees as, is, as the big threat to its own security the right. Was that the view, what Neil Schmidt said, would that have been the view generally in Germany these last 10, 15, 20 years? Or is that something he's saying in response to the events of this week? I would say that he he's speaking out loud what the, what the elite politics are saying for the, for the last, I would say, since 2017, since the, the previous, previous election, when the AfD, uh, the right-wing uh, party, uh, became the third biggest party in the Bundestag. Uh, they were head of opposition. Um, it was so surprising. I, I, I remember myself covering it and, and saying out loud live on TV, it's the first time that a party like that is part of the Bundestag since, since the Second World War, since the Shoah. And they're taking it since then very seriously. But 
I guess that if you would ask like the like the Jewish community or something like that, they they would say yes, the far right is a problem, but we also have a problem with 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 left anti-Semitism and with um, jihadist and Islamism. So, so I think it really depends on who in Germany you are asking. But I think that um, I think that the far right already proved that they're a huge problem. I mean, you spoke about the Jewish community just three years ago. We had this attack in a synagogue in Halle, uh, where a far right young man just came there and and tried to massacre over one hundred Jews that were praying in Yom Kippur. And the only reason why he didn't succeed was that this very strange wooden door wouldn't fall down. So it was luck, but it could have been like, I remember myself, I was at my grandmother's and getting this news and I started to cry and my grandmother said, what is happening? And I said, I have to go now to Halle. And she, she, she said, why, what? And then I told her, well, the Germans are starting to, to kill Jews in synagogues again. Gosh. Yeah, and uh, at the end, the, the, this, this, um, this neo-Nazi um, killed two uh, civilians, they were on Jews, but, but he still succeeded in killing people. So, so they have their organizations, they are, they are connected via Telegram, via WhatsApp. You can see every time the media is covering up more stories about groups like neo-Nazi groups or far-right groups um, that were uh, members of the Bundeswehr or um, the German army or the or the German police. And also in this uh, in this group that was arrested this week, we can see members um, of the Bundeswehr, which is the, the German army and the German police. And of course, also ex-members um, of politics from this IFD. You know, just to hear you saying those words to your grandmother about the Germans are killing Jews in synagogues again, that sends a shiver down anyone's spine, I think. Um, to personally ask you, Antonia, do you feel, um, as a Jew in Berlin, more in danger than you did a decade ago? I mean, is, it, is there a difference? Is it better? Is it worse? Can you tell us personally? It's a personal feeling. Um, I, I, I am actually, when I'm broadcasting for Build on TV, I'm always wearing a small Magen David, um, like a Star of David, mm -hmm. just because I did it once and then people started to ask me about it. And then I thought to myself, I will do that until people stop asking, until it's just normal that a Jewish um, correspondent is on mm -hmm. German TV. Um, but when I go out of, of my newsroom, or when I when I go home and, I, and I'm using the public transportation, I actually take it off because I, I, I really feel it on my body because, but it doesn't mean that anti-Semitism is, is so wide and so wild in Berlin. It just, after six years of covering one anti-Semitic incident after another, I'm just much more aware of it, I, I guess. Um, but yes, there there are definitely areas in Berlin in which I wouldn't um, show that I am Jewish or Israeli. Yeah. So I want want your guidance on this. I've my in across my lifetime, I feel I've gone through a whole journey on in terms of attitudes to Germany. Uh, meaning, I grew up with a mother who would not allow German products mm -hmm. in the house. 
you know, that there was, and no, no, we would certainly not drive a German car, etc. all those things. Then in the last 20 years, I have been, like a lot of Jews, I think, really impressed by how Germany has faced up to and reckoned with the history of the Holocaust in a way that almost all the other European countries implicated in the murder of six million Jews have not. And I've seen it as a kind of model country, in a way, for facing up to its own past and therefore have sort of thought that of all the places actually the, where you'd want to wear a mug in David, maybe Germany would be the most okay in continental Europe. And now I'm wondering from what you've told me and your own recent experience these last six years, whether actually that kind of liberal turn of the 21st century attitude maybe is out of date and maybe Germany has more of a problem than perhaps I was allowing myself to think. I actually agree with what you say. I really think that, that Germany faced up to its past. Uh, you can see it in every corner you, you go in Berlin. You can see a memorial of that kind or a sign or a story. And, and you can see it also in the way that the Germans are building their buildings. The, the, the German Bundestag has this uh, transparent dome where people can stand on top of it and look down on their representatives that they have chosen and see how they are um, making up their laws. So all this transparency is for democracy. The, the idea behind that is that normal people like me and you can go up there and can, can look down on their people that they have chosen and see how they talk to each other, how, how they make up their laws. So so they really have this this democracy gene inside of them. It's a country that has 16 states under it. Every state has its own government, its own ministers. So you can imagine how much balagan it was uh, during Corona, because each state has its own government and its own ministers, and each state has its own mind. So it's, it, it was pretty hard to, to do um, Corona regulations uh, back then. Um, but that's exactly how they are keeping up their democracy. Um, but of course, anti-Semitism is, is a problem, but it's it's not just a German problem. I, I guess it's a worldwide problem. And, and, and I don't see it going away anytime soon. Yeah, sadly, I think you might be right about that. Antonia Amin, uh, senior correspondent uh, and analyst for Build. Thank you so much for talking to us, Antonia. You really uh, opened our eyes on a few topics. Thanks so much. Thank you, Yonit, and thank you, Jonathan. Thank, thank you. you. Fascinating to hear from uh, Antonia Yamin there, um, just the perspective of a German Israeli is already so, so interesting. But what she was telling us about what was going on, I mean, partly what was in my mind when I made this point about the German authorities saying, look, the number one threat here is right wing extremism. I remember in the 2020 campaign, the FBI said something quite similar in the United States. Uh, and we read now that the United States... Um, we read now that the government in Australia, the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, saying, look, we need to may need to rewrite our counterterrorism laws to handle what is now the number one threat there, which is uh, right wing extremism, or, or at least that that is one of the great threats facing them. And what really interested me is, again, what she's saying there in Australia is, is, yeah, we were more focused on the threat of religious fundamentalism, meaning uh, violent jihadism 
the and uh, and that 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 sort of posture, that post nine eleven posture of obsessing about violent Islamist groups, meant that they have not been uh, alert to the kind of lone wolf or less sophisticated acts that are coming from the ultra nationalist far right. And you've just had these, you know, this example in Germany. There's there's what's happening in Australia. Obviously, QAnon in the United States. I do wonder if for the last two decades we did sort of. Put to, put it slightly to one side in our minds, uh, and I, when I say our, I mean security agencies. Maybe um, put in the West, put uh, too much on the back burner the notion of the threat from the far right. Uh, it does look like that, and as you say, suddenly uh, everyone is 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 waking up. I think that the fact that we're seeing in the United States um, these horrendous uh, horrendous attacks on Jews, the two things are happening, right? You have the Kanye West with what he's saying, and, and, and you have, for example, in New York, there's an uptick in anti-Semitic incidents. You see that around the United States, right? That the, it, it makes you think, uh, and maybe this is an incredibly sad thought, right, that the world that you and I grew up in, uh, in which anti-Semitism was frowned upon, in which far right was really pushed to the fringes of, of society, is now no longer... The norm. We are moving farther away from from World War Two, and more and more things that once were unacceptable are now acceptable. Yeah, I think there's a version of that in the wider world, and I'm bound to say, just because we were talking about the Israeli government, obviously it's not about anti-Semitism, but the far right in Israel too used to be shunned. Uh, in the 1980s, I was reading a reminder that when Mayor Kahana would speak in the Knesset, everyone would walk out. Uh, including Yitzhak Shamir, Prime Minister of the right-wing Likud party, would not stay in the chamber. And now somebody who proudly calls himself a disciple of Kahana is a minister in the government in the form of Ben Gvir. So there's, that's an analogue to what's going on around the world. I do think the taboos that really animated, uh, you know, certainly the years in which we grew up, but the post-war period, those taboos are fading and they take different forms in different places. Um, I think security agencies, by the way, if they were in this conversation would say, look, we always knew the far right was around and a threat, but there was a sense in which it was sort of taken as red. It was a given. Okay. Apart from the far right, people would say the big thing is this. And I think now that formulation is, is out of date. And there's been, you know, as Antonio was saying, it's not as if this is a brand new thing. She mentioned the attack in Halle. Uh, we obviously saw the hideous events in, uh, tree of life synagogue in Pittsburgh, but also in Christchurch, New Zealand, there have been, um, you know, uh, uh, Anders Breivik in Norway, you know, this has been going on for a long, long time, violent, murderous attacks by the racist far right. But I think probably in the world we're in now, we need to say that is the number one threat. Uh, and the and it's the other threats that we need to put in that sort of, um, you know, mentioning as a second, second order business. So, yeah, very good to hear um, the view uh, from somebody who's right there day to day in Germany. So tradition demands that we uh, hand out some awards, chutzpah awards and mensch awards. So our chutzpah of the week, I want to, I know some people will uh, want them forever to be mensch of the week, the happy uh, couple Harry and Meghan, um, the Sussexes, uh, and they, um, I was going to say made their debut, but they've been doing so much of this. But they were on Netflix uh, this week. Volume one, they're calling it, uh, dropped on Thursday. There'll be volume two 
in a week's time uh, a cluster of three episodes of their uh, tell-all story for uh, Netflix. Um, you know, people get very divided on this subject. In this country, there are, you know, pro-Harry and Meghan factions, you know, vitriolically anti-Harry and Meghan factions. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for them. I quite like them as a couple. But there was one bit in the Netflix trailer um, that just did make me smile, really, because <laughs> the Netflix trailer for the first one begins with big sort of... Um, doom-laden music and you know as if a big suspense story is about to be unloaded and it begins with the revelation that there is a hierarchy in this family <laughs> says prince harry right and it's as if he's no is it hereditary too <laughs> he's revealing this huge explosive new truth that the royal family has a hierarchy you know what we had worked that out. It's quite <laughs> literally the case that the dad is the king. Then there are princes. Um, there, you know, this is a this is a system where hierarchy is there. There's dukes, and dukes come above earls, and you know, uh, we know there's a hierarchy. So I thought to myself, Netflix, um, you could have chosen maybe a different line of copy there, and then he does go on to say it's a dirty game, etc. The other thing, of course, for Hutzpah, um, that the anti-Harry and Meghan camp have really seized on is as a visual in the Netflix trailer, um, there is a scene of tons and tons of uh, press photographers training their lenses. You assume on Harry and Meghan, and you assume it's the paparazzi. It turns out that shot was taken from a Harry Potter film premiere. And as many photographers have pointed out, they were invited to be there. They weren't paparazzi. So wrong event, wrong situation. Um, in fairness, the Chutzpah Award really probably, you know, should go to Netflix and their promotional department. They probably cut the line about hierarchy out of context. They probably were the ones who took the picture. But nevertheless, I think, you know, that trailer and the and its assumption that it is brand new breaking news to a waiting world that there is a hierarchy in the Windsor family. Uh, I'm suggesting that for this week's Chutzpah. But my headline from all everything that you said is that you said that you kind of liked them. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is why? Because they broke away from the royal family or you liked them because their plights no, I like they? I liked them before. I mean, you know, I think... Um, I, so why do I like them? Uh, Harry's Invictus Games thing, I think, mm -hmm. is a really good thing. Um mm -hmm. You know, it was his own idea, the idea of games for, uh, you know, sporting competition for uh, wounded uh, military veterans. I think that's quite a good thing. And, you know, I do think, um, call me sentimental, but I did, call, you know, like that there was a woman of colour in this heavily white Anglo-Saxon Protestant family. Uh, I thought that has a hierarchy, was really, as we know. That has a hierarchy. <laughs> I knew about that. Um, it, you know, I thought they were a kind of, you know, new generation, etc. I, I didn't, you know, my overall views on monarchy. I'm not a fan mm -hmm. as a system. Um, but I thought, yeah, I, I was quite well disposed to them. And I'm not hostile to them now. But I thought this trailer um, took a little bit of a royal biscuit, a Duchy of Cornwall <laughs> biscuit for chutzpah. Uh, if you're telling us that your big scoop is that there is a hierarchy just, in that family, it, that's kind of the point. <laughs> to say nothing of the fact I think they wanted to be left alone. You can't say you want to be left alone and have a three-part series on Netflix. But never mind. Never mind. I like them too. Yeah. Let's go to yeah. the Mensch Award, which I actually 
really, really like this story. It's a story of an author named Chelsea Banning who wrote a book and headed to her book signing. Uh, 37 people RSVP. She thought she'd be meeting a rather nice group of people, but only two people arrived. And then she took to Twitter, as people do these days, and she wrote about, she actually wrote, I, I feel kind of bummed out, I'm upset, and honestly a little embarrassed. Now, the story uh, develops because then came in a long list of very, very empathetic authors, really famous ones, who kept writing writing to her about their experiences in book signings. So, you know, came in first was Margaret Atwood, the the inimitable Margaret Atwood, who wrote to her, joined the club. I did a signing to which nobody came except a guy who wanted to buy some scotch tape and thought I was the help. And then came in Neil Gaiman, one of my favorite books of all time, Good Omens, saying that he uh, uh, walked with Terry Pratchett and did a signing in Manhattan for Good Omens. Nobody came at all, so you are too up on us, he wrote. And, uh, you know, on and on. Uh, of course, the story created uh, a big buzz, and her book is now much higher on Amazon list than it, it was in the beginning, I assume. More people will arrive uh, to her next uh, book signing, but I love this story. Um, and as someone who is um, a writer, Jonathan, I'm not a writer. I just wrote a few books in my head. But someone who actually wrote books, uh, did you ever have an experience like this? I'm interested. Yes, I did. Oh, dear. <laughs> yes. oh, dear. <laughs> I definitely have. Um, I've definitely had that experience. The thing that I, is brutal about yes. book signings is, okay, it can be on your own and then really, in a way, no one sees your humiliation apart from you and usually the bookseller who's so embarrassed and it's awkward. And all that. No, the worst thing is if you're at a book festival where there's competitive signing because oh. you will have done a talk and an event and then so will, um, you know, Andre Agassi in the, in, the, in the tent just over. And so there'll be a line of, you know, round the block for him and you're there with the sort of person who's constantly rearranging the pens <laughs> and, you know, saying, I'm sure they'll be here in a minute. Can I give you another glass of wine? And you say, you know, you've already brought me three. Um, these these are experiences that I, I'm happy to say are some time ago, but they definitely do happen. And, you know, I, this very evening, I will be at Waterstones in central London. Uh, where they're doing a sort of pre-Christmas thing where all your favourite authors will be there. And do not think that all these authors are not desperately competitive with each other, giving each other sort of side-eye as they look to see, hang on, how many has he got? Oh, she's got a big queue, you know. So it's it's a... Um, it's a it's a bruising experience and I'm all with our award winner because she was right to reach out and how good those other writers have been to uh, share solidarity. I didn't know about the story till you told me about it, but now that I do, maybe I'll go and send her a message of my own too. <laughs> we have all been there, um, but it is very gratifying when you do get a long line, lots of people want to read your book. It's a very gratifying thing. And then we can put it in our color-coded library after we get the book. See what I did there? See what I did there? It's like the the blood pressure is increasing. I've got all calm. I've got all calm. And now you're making me relive the pain. I'll come and organize your library in color codes. Don't worry. I know you want it. Organizing it at all. Look at that. I'm showing it to you again. The color code is the least of it. It just needs to come off the floor and onto shelves. It is embarrassing. It looks awful. We shall say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Yair Boshan, and Rom Atik. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. See you then, you'll need color-coded or not. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.